You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thanks for subscribing to the Premium Podcast for My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. I've got a couple things to talk about today, and I think um, what you're going to see over the next couple episodes on the Premium side is um, a group of sketches that I've sort of worked on, which may show up in other episodes, particularly like the last arc of commerce, but right now are sort of sort of floating. And I have these like sketches and I think they're interesting. In any case, um, but first, um, we talked to Rick Perlstein about the 1980 convention. Um, the genesis of that is that I was really just planning to do one on the 1976 convention to coincide with the Democrats having their convention, which I thought would be in July, then it got moved to August and <laughs> contacted Rick Perlstein. He immediately contacted back. He had listened to some of the past episodes on the Reagan series that we did. So uh, it was great talking to him. He's a font of information, as I said, and on the episode and just had, a, there was a lot more. Um, one of the things we talked about that there were actual floor fights on the convention. This is just one of those things that just didn't get in, should have gotten into the episode. But when episodes can become unwieldy, and it was already the case that the 1980 episode was kind of an extra thing, mostly based on having Rick Perlstein to talk to about it. And then I just got fascinated by it, particularly the, the handshake between Carter and Kennedy um, and, and the raising of the arms that didn't happen that might have cost an election so we it, it built into an episode it was a great episode but i think there were some parts missing one is that there was a additional floor fights on the convention including a figure that we know but he was playing a different role and that's richard gephardt here's rick perlstein there are real-time audibles that are called one of them is um uh feminist delegates really effectively basically force a floor vote on uh the abortion and ERA planks. I mean, obviously they support the ERA, but one of the planks is a debate over whether to withdraw DNC funds from people who don't support uh, the ERA. And um, Carter decides at the last minute, look, I can't fight this, even though I don't want this fight to happen. Uh, I'm going to lose female votes in droves uh, if I don't do this. And the abortion debate I don't even know if like people know this. People know that there were, you know, like fist fights on the floor in 1968, but there was um violence on the floor during the abortion debate. Uh the Missouri delegation led by a young guy named Dick Gephardt was was strongly pro-life and the California delegation was next on the floor and was strongly pro-choice and uh the the pro-lifers uh, put up a banner, like one of those giant banners with kind of two poles at the end that had to be held by two people. Uh, let me let me see what the banner said. Uh, oh, <laughs> uh, yes. Pro-life Missourians position themselves next to the podium and tries to try to raise this massive da- uh, banner with a picture of a, a little girl on it reading, kill her now, it's murder, kill her before birth, it's abortion. I mean, can you imagine seeing that one on TV? 
and members of the California delegation physically tried to stop them. Uh, true pro-lifers, one of them a state senator and the other a St. Louis city clerk, uh, violently tried to wrap the massive banner over one of the pro-choice California delegates. Uh, there was a scuffle and a congressman, a U.S. congressman named Harold Volkmer, uh, who was best known for his opposition to gun control, knocked one of the California delegates to the floor. <laughs> this, this is going on in TV. And this is, you know, the incumbent president's party having these fights. Rick and I also talked about the 1980 election, and 1980 is kind of a tricky one, and there's a lot of opinions about it. Tip O'Neill, the Speaker of the House, in his book, always insisted that while Carter may have lost the 1980 election, it was exaggerated by the fact that he had conceded early, uh, which hurt his popular vote in the Western states, and that... Anderson, John Anderson, was running as a third-party candidate, taking votes away from Carter, which exaggerated how Reagan's victory looked. And from his point of view as a professional politician and the Speaker of the House, he was angry about it, particularly about Carter's early concession on election night, but also about just the whole election and Anderson running because it hurt the position of Democrats thereafter and put Reagan in this kind of exalted status and really united Republicans behind him because he had just won this huge victory. And finally, for the first time since the 1950s, 30 years, Republicans had the Senate, which Democrats had had ruled since the days when Johnson was a young majority leader. So, um, yeah. 1980 gets tricky, and there's a lot of opinions about it. I, I am on the Ohio vs. the World podcast recently. I'll be on again when he had asked me about that. I don't really have much of an answer. I guess my go-to is that 1980 was going to be a loss for Carter. Um, and one of the reasons is exactly in line with what um, Rick Perlstein's about to say. I'm going to play another clip from him where we discussed that 1980 election. But I do feel that a lot of time was wasted fighting a third-party candidate as president so the John Anderson campaign really hurt Carter and his chance for re-election. And they might have had a chance for like a quick pop win over Reagan, particularly because of all the concerns about Reagan. But certainly debate hurt him. The fact that they did a debate the day, the week before uh, election night that hurt Carter, and uh, you know, third-party candidate, and the economy. Here's Rick Perlstein talking about, um, we always look at the hostage crisis, but Rick Perlstein talks about that. So the conventional wisdom is completely 100% that one of the major factors in contributing to Carter's loss was that, you know, first uh, hostages were, were taken in Iran uh, and that, that never would have happened and America kind of stood tall and, you know, not, you know, retreated with its tail between its legs after Vietnam. And then that he wasn't able to um, return the hostages. What I discovered was something very fascinating. Uh, CBS, NBC, I'm sorry, the CBS News and the New York Times did a massive exit poll, probably the biggest of that time. They interviewed 13,000 voters uh, on Election Day in 1980. And it's true that U.S. prestige around the world was voters' most important issue. The economic issue was, to answer your question, by far the most important. Uh, And those who cited it as their most important issue, in other words, the reason I'm 
choosing who I'm choosing is because I'm really concerned about this issue. That went for Reagan 61% to 31%. And it was a 13 point, I'm sorry, that was a 16 point gain for the Republicans. But another result from that poll was really, really counterintuitive. 17% of voters said the crisis in Iran was their most important issue. But those voters favored Carter by a margin of two to one. So that to me suggests that for the people who for whom this was a salient voting issue, Carter won that issue by far. Uh, I think that that's just really one of those examples where people, yeah, instant punditry, uh, people remember elections in ways that are very different from when they, where they actually went down. Uh, that's you know that's your that's that's your that's your craft. You know, as a history podcaster, is kind of you know revisiting these these actual actualities as they happen instead of, you know, as they're remembered. Uh, you know, the conventional wisdom was wrong. I, I mean, maybe more than posterity appreciated, people respected Carter's kind of grinding, sedulous efforts to negotiate a favorable outcome uh, with people who appeared to be lunatics, uh, keeping the hostages alive, right? So even though they weren't returned, they weren't harmed. Uh, maybe they admired the fact that he tried a rescue gambit, uh, I think it's very possible, and one of the things I think people really um, don't appreciate from the election uh, was that people were just absolutely terrified of Reagan, uh, that he might do anything to punish Iran, uh, that he might start another Vietnam War or, or nuke Iran. Uh, one of um, – a historian uh, um, told me a joke, right, as kind of – I was finishing the book, and I was able to sneak it in there. Uh, the joke is, what, what's green and glows? Do you know what the punchline is? The punchline is Iran 15 minutes after Ronald Reagan's inauguration. So, you know, for a lot of people, yes. Uh, for some people, that's uh, that's an advertisement for Ronald Reagan. There was an unbelievable vigilante rage that I try to get across. Lots of people beating up Iranian students, uh, calling students to be deported. Um, but for a lot of people, that really was why Reagan shouldn't be within 50 feet of the White House. Uh that's certainly one of Carter's main reasons that he started attacking Ronald Reagan in a way that um, really um, set the press off. He was considered mean, that he used to be a nice guy, but then he'd become a mean guy. For, for, for Carter, it was all about you know warning people about what he considered a true danger. So that's, you know, to me, it's it was it was it was it was all economics and it was economics with a very particular valence right yes i i tend to agree i didn't know it until i talked to rex so hey i'm learning new stuff all the time too here um i also know that the reagan campaign in 1980 was kind of ready for some kind of october surprise they had people ready as almost like saying, like, this is probably going to happen. We think the president can probably recover the hostages. And that um, there were numerous people in the foreign policy establishment who had ties to the Republicans who were reporting on any big events it, to the point that they were even looking at like massive, um, massive movement in the foreign policies. You know, if everybody was going to some meeting in Washington and the Reagan campaign knew about that, they were really cued in because their biggest fear is that Carter would 
release the hostages or find you know find a solution which he almost did it was really a simple bank transfer that ends up holding up 1980 uh, you know and, and carter's release of the hostages and brings it to election day um what would happen if he released it i don't think carter wins anyway i think the economic damage was so strong and but again you know you look at elections like 2016 2000 you never know what'll happen with electoral college and Carter had a little advantage in the South that no Democrats had since. So, we'll leave it there. A lot of times I do diagonal research. That means I'm, okay, so if I'm going to talk about James Madison, I'm going to read a book on George Washington or Jefferson. I tend, I will look at some modern book where someone might have written about James Madison but I often find that authors, you know, they write a book with an agenda. So I think it's good to do the diagonal research and sort of read other things and see what you come across in the index uh, or in a search. Uh, Google Books has been great for this. Google Books has just, you know, allowed the podcast to happen really in a, in a more meaningful way, more depth. But anyway, um, so I, I was just doing some and I also do a lot of random research. I just kind of read things without an intention because – I don't want to have a thesis in the beginning. And so I was looking at um, Whitman's Leaves of Grass. And wouldn't you know, it would sort of go towards answering a big question of politics. Um, America does not repel the past or what it has produced under its forms or amid other politics or the idea of castes or the old religions. America accepts the lesson with calmness is not so impatient as has been supposed that the slough still sticks to opinions and manners and literature. While the life which served its requirements has passed into the new life of new forms, it perceives that the corpse is slowly born from the eating and sleeping rooms of the house, perceives that it waits a little while in the door, that it was fittest for its days, that its action has descended to the stalwart and well-shaped heir who approaches and that he shall be fittest for his days. The Americans of all nations at any time upon the earth have probably the fullest poetical nature. The United States themselves are essentially the greatest poem. I'm emphasizing the United States themselves are the greatest poem. In the history of the earth, hitherto, the largest and most stirring appear tame and orderly, to their ampler largeness and stir. Here at last is something that the doings of man. Here, here at last is something of the doings of man that corresponds with the broadest, broadcast doings of the day and night. 1855 is using the word broadcast, guys. The broadcast doings of the day and night. Here is not merely a nation, but a teeming nation of nations. Here is action, untied from strings, necessarily blind to particulars, and details magnificently moving in vast masses. Here is the hospitality which forever indicates heroes. Here are the roughs and beards and space and the ruggedness and nonchalance that the soul loves. Here the performance, disdaining the trivial unapproached, in the tremendous audacity of its crowds and groupings, and the push of its perspective spreads with crampless and flowing breath. 
and showers its prolific and splendid extravagance. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. What's he doing here? Whitman? I think he's setting you up in his preface for his poem, which at his time is going to be radical, not the type of poetry that other American poets were making. But he first wants to set you up that America can handle this. You know, America knows that, uh, that uh, you know, new things are possible. One sees it must indeed own the riches of the summer and winter and need never be bankrupt while corn grows from the ground or the orchards drop apples or the bays contain fish or men beget children upon women. Other states indicate themselves in their deputies. But the genius of the United States is not best or most in its executives or legislatures, nor in its ambassadors or authors or colleges or churches or parlors, not even in its newspapers or inventors, but always most in the common people. Their manners, speech, dress, friendships, the freshness and candor, the picturesque looseness of their carriage, their deathless attachment to freedom, their aversion to anything indecorous or soft or mean, the practical acknowledgement of the citizens of one state by the citizens of all other states, the fierceness of their roused resentment, the curiosity and welcome of novelty, their self-esteem and wonderful sympathy, their susceptibility to a slight, the air they have of persons who never knew how it felt to stand in their presence of superiors, the fluency of their speech, the delight in their music. I'm going to stop there. It's a celebration of America and the American states. But you may have noticed that Whitman did something interesting there. In one section, he says, the United States themselves are the greatest poem, right? And then in another section, he says, but the genius of the United States is. So we've always heard that after the Civil War, you know, it it started as the United States are, and it became the United States is, and I haven't done a podcast on it, but my thesis on that has always been that's not the case. I believe there's some references that Washington made where you're using that R in in relation to the United States. Now, I don't want to go too far with that because I haven't done full research on that. But right here you see in Whitman interchanging the United States is and the United States are. What does it mean? Well, it's obvious that the United States was a nation. So any kind of um, – this – this um, Whitman preface could be used 
in terms of some of the silly debates that might happen on the internet where, you know, you're hearing people saying that the states are individual nations and it's only, you know, Lincoln's whip that brought everybody under heel and, uh, you know, turned the states into nations and, and, and into one nation. And it's not true. Americans at that time understood that they were both states that were individual in characteristics that obviously had powers. Uh, that still to this day retain powers, um, powers over education and health. You see that debate going on in the COVID-19 epidemic, pandemic, different policies, but also one nation, the United States is. And so um thought that was an interesting little note in a preface about um, two Walt Whitman's poems, Leaves of Grass. So... Whitman's an interesting character in the same book. Um, they also have a note about the visit of Ralph Waldo Emerson to Whitman. So a lot of poets just have disdain for what Whitman's doing and the type of poetry of this plain spoken language that he's using and what he's writing about. Emerson loves it. And Emerson comes down to see Whitman in Brooklyn where he's living and finds him in this really cramped quarters and you know not well dressed and everything but does have a conversation with him and tells him how much he enjoys the book and his review of his poem is something that Whitman prints in his edition with pride Whitman will never stop updating leaves of grass he'll do it till the end of his life another sketch Washington gets the flu In the second year of George Washington's presidency, 1790, he was gravely ill. An epidemic had reached the capital city then of New York, and George Washington was among those who were on the receiving end. This after he had just caught the disease in the fall and had a rough recovery and suffered other ailments, at one point being operated on for a tumor in his thigh. This last bout was worse than that first, and he'd write in his diary, One more incidence of this dreaded disease will probably put me down with my fathers. Washington felt that maybe the presidency was responsible. He had undergone more severe sickness, he writes in his diary, than in his 30 years of life before. A very active life. A life of being with the army, being with other people, being in some crowds, but perhaps not the type of crowds that he was in as president in the federal government. You know, in New York, where the Confederation Congress had met, it would move to Philadelphia in the next year. The cough, the pain, and the shortness in breathing were among the symptoms described by Washington. Health concerned George Washington greatly. His brother Lawrence was in his early 30s when he passed. His sister Mildred was three and a half, and sister Jane died at 12. Health was all around that family. He would walk, he would ride, he would do other exercises. 
drank very little, he ate moderately, tried to get his sleep, and he avoided tobacco. But more than that, Washington studied up on medicine. On his death, he had nine medical books in his library. A 1759 order, this would be 30 years before the time we're talking about, from British merchants included medicines. Lavender, jalap, Venice treacle, rhubarb, liquid laudanum, bird lime, balsam sulfur, cinnamon water, tincture of mirth. These are all things he'd order. He'd order the uh, cinchona tree bark for fever treatment. Very common uh, treatment. He had experienced malaria in Virginia woods many times. In this case, it's likely the influenza began in May or April of 1790, though there is no direct record. One note, he signs no papers, official papers, in April or May regarding his presidency. Friend and constitutional delegate George Clymer said, I do not know the exact state of GW's health for a day or two at last. But in the city, there was a great deal of worrying about his health. And, and it shows up in the letters among people. It's not reported in the newspapers. And certainly Washington doesn't want the nation concerned with himself. But those in the know, know. Uh, William McCauley says um, he couldn't hear and nearly lost his eyesight. It wasn't just a touch of flu. He had pneumonia as well. And it shows up in the letters. He will begin a journey southward as soon as he can, which should restore him, Clymer said optimistically. Oh, yes. That was the belief at the time. And and really, well, up until now, we still believe that it's good to get to a nice sunny climate. But certainly in the 18th, 19th centuries, that was a big belief. And uh, Clymer's echoing it there that hopefully he can get out of New York. Uh, Washington does try exercise, and he's able to get himself through a tour on Long Island, a Long Island in New York, in April. Financier Robert Morris feels that it works. He's regained his looks, he says. Abraham Baldwin, congressman, finds him to be manifestly better. His habits require exercise. If he doesn't improve, we must send him to Mount Vernon, Baldwin added. I think that the founding um, crowd of politicians in New York City and the Capitol felt almost guilty for maybe what they had done to America's leader and had taken too much of him. That's what Baldwin reflects. Uh, He's got us started on the new ship. We can give him a rest. But he's a little restored by the trip to Long Island and getting out there and riding. Um, again, you know, this is a guy who exercises every day. He was in very good shape by all accounts of Washington, but it doesn't last. He's confined to bed in May. Dr. Samuel Bard is watching over him. Bard is a student of medicine in England and Scotland. He was accused of loyalist sympathies during the war. He had treated uh, British officers during the New York occupation, never left New York City during that time. 
but he remained in New York and was one of the best doctors. He was the one who in the previous year removed the tumor from Washington's leg. William McClay said that uh, he went to see Washington and found every eye full of tears. His health is despaired of. Some talk that his condition is grave. Theodore Sedgwick, another congressman, says in May 16th that physicians had no help of his recovery. Abigail Adams talked of hiccups and rattling in the throat and says that Martel Washington left the room at one point thinking him dying. Thomas Jefferson, Secretary of State, writes to his daughter weighing in on this topic, the president is taken ill of perinomony and threatening appearance. Jefferson, writing to Martha, his daughter, says that uh, the commander-in-chief seemed to sweat it out. Getting into detail, his expectations were of a more digested form. His articulation is becoming better. From total despair, we are now in good hopes for him. Yeah, what happens is it seems that just when they're having little hope, Washington gets into the sweating fit and then appears better. This is in line with the type of medicine at the day. Abigail talks of perhaps it was the medicine, the James powders, which is an antimonical you know, actually uh, an alloy, not unlike lead, a metal alloy that was put, a small traces of it are put into the medicine developed by a British physician, hence the James, um, part antimony, part phosphate, calcium, designed to purge and break fevers by producing sweats. You know, it's technically a toxic metal, but this was the Medicine at the time, and appearing, at least according to Abigail Adams, it had a happy effect. I mean, you just have everyone talking about this incident, and there's people writing letters all over New York about every kind of little aspect of Washington's condition. Oh, John Fenno, the newspaper editor, writes, the president is expectorating blood. By May 25th, James Madison could happily report that the president could ride again. Richard Henry Lee finds him in an easy chair, stirring up, and Jefferson finds him resuming business by May 27th. Martha Washington writes around the same time that he, of course, Washington, is the least concerned of anyone about his own condition. It is not until May 18th, two months into his, his illness likely, uh, that the first, or, or at least a month into his illness, that the first newspaper reports the event. The New York Journal says the President of the United States has been exceedingly indisposed for several days. The Philadelphia Gazette picks it up, reports the same, and reaction in those papers comes back immediately in their further editions with people reporting the sadness. Rutledge in South Carolina reports that the citizenry is alarmed at the President's ill health. By May 26, newspapers around the country are able to report that recovery. For Washington's part, he knows what to blame. It was the presidency. The inactivity of my office had hurt my health. He decided to take more trips. He would exercise more. And interestingly enough, right around this time, 1790, he and Washington go on a fishing trip off Sandy Hook, New Jersey. 
what we all wouldn't pay to be a fly on a wall for that fishing trip, right? I want to thank you for listening, and that'll conclude this. I plan to do more of these sketches. i got a bunch coming up. One um, is an interview with Edison, Thomas Edison. He took a few interviews, but I have a couple of them, and they're interesting. (laughs) He's an interesting guy. Um, Planning on doing an episode on the other podcast channel on Benjamin Harrison and him dealing with a cholera outbreak and the immigration consequences of that. And uh, just a bunch more topics on elections now that it's 2020. Um, I have a book by a person who helped to both elect Lincoln and as a young, really a young man in his 20s and help reelect him as well. And we're going to talk about that. I think we're going to look at um, more, you know, we've been doing a lot of Jimmy Carter and I think looking at that Ford Carter election in the last couple of days where it's really close. Ford wins some big states. Virginia, California, could have snatched it from him. You know, you could have had Ford with another term. That's not out of the question. We'll look at that and what happened. I also want to make a note that, you know, I am going to start shifting things over to Patreon. In terms of what you'll hear me advertising on the podcast, I'll be saying please go to our Patreon instead of advertising the extra podcast. I do want you to know that if you're listening on this channel, you're going to receive anything that's on that Patreon. Um, one of the big things we're going to do is LBJ and looking at the question as to whether he really did um, want to refuse his nomination in 1968 or if he wanted secretly to have that nomination happen. We're going to look at that. And that special episode will be available here as well as the Patreon. Everything, there'll be nothing on Patreon that you're not hearing here, just so you know. Why am I shifting? Patreon is a better infrastructure. Um, I had to build this premium podcast infrastructure and uh, required some work done in 2016. And, you know, it's um, people are familiar with Patreon and they know it. And other podcasts have helped to advertise Patreon. So I think it's just a, it's a place to go. But again, I just want to assure you that, you know, you're getting everything here. Don't worry. And thanks for supporting me.